morning. How are y'all doing? Awesome. Awesome. Good job. I have to practice that in the mirror in the mornings before I respond to that. Um, good morning. Uh, my name is Dylan Meyer. We'll get a few of the formalities out um, of the way. My name is Dylan Meyer. I'm the youth pastor here. I'm sorry you're stuck with me. Um, no, I'm not. No, you know, God's got some good things in store. I always love it when I wake up in the morning um, with this feeling that like I need Jesus to get through this day because that means that he's going to show up and God's still good. Man, that's awesome. Um, so here's a few quick things. Um, if you grabbed one of these on the way in, this is a worship guide. Um, it has announcements on one side, which is going to cover a few things, which includes um, youth stuff for the summer, kids stuff for the summer. Um, there's a junior high camp coming up. High school camp just finished. We already saw something about, about VBS, and then there's a kids camp coming in August. All of that stuff is phenomenal. Um, I'm biased, but you can trust me. Um, so all of that stuff is awesome. Again, th on the back side also, there's a Connect card. Um, if, you, if this is your first time here, we would love for you to fill that out um, and drop it in the box. The box is near the, the back of the worship center or take it to the welcome center. We would even love to just meet you face to face. That's always so much better. Um, but another thing too is if you have one of these guys, this is a reach pledge card. Um, we would love to have these back um, by the 15th. Um, we will take them afterward graciously. But if you have one of those, we would love it back soon. If you want to know more about that, um, go to the worship welcome center. Welcome Center, final answer. Um, and we have some of those and somebody that can answer your questions, probably. Awesome. We did good, yeah? Okay, so Eric got us started off, um, Pastor Eric did last week, with this new series for the summer, A Mile in Their Shoes. And I love this idea. I love this series. Um, and he did a really good job of incorporating some really creative and really cool ways to incorporate shoes into his sermon. Um, no promises on if I'm that creative, but what I can promise is we're going to tread through Scripture, we're going to lace grace through this sermon, and if we do it just right, you'll feel it in your soul. Ah. Okay, thank you, thank you. Yep, I'm here all week. <laughs> but... Um, if you guys haven't noticed yet, I'm wearing my favorite pair of shoes. Um, when I walked in this morning, I left the house before my wife was awake. That's always a good move um, because otherwise I have to go back and change four times before I leave. But I made it out today um, before she caught me, and then she showed up here, and she goes, are those shoes a part of the sermon? And I said, what if they're not? And she gave me a scowl. And so, um, yes, they are. These right here are my favorite shoes, and let me tell you why. Because these these shoes and I have been through some things, um, lots of things, if you can tell. Um, so I got these shoes when I was a junior in high school, and believe it or not, once upon a time, they were white. So I still refer to these as my white Nike shoes. They're amazing. I love them. Um, when I bought them, they were white, they were clean, they were crisp, they were beautiful, and they were useful for everything. I could go to church in these and it was appropriate. I could go to school in these and not look like a bum. I could run in these, I could play in these, I could play basketball on the street in these. They were so versatile and they looked so nice. And so that's what I did. I did everything in these shoes and the things that they were permitted to do gradually got smaller and smaller. 
They were church shoes when we started. They were more like PE shoes closer to the end, and they, they actually also survived a summer, um, summer job in Dairy Queen when I was in high school, which if you've worked in fast food, it is brutal on your shoes. And so they survived miraculously. Um, I didn't know that like non-slip shoes were a thing. Um, so I barely survived, but they did great. Um, but these, these are my favorite shoes. But they look pretty rugged. And one of the reasons I don't wear them as much anymore is because they've become like detached. And so I'll trip on the way upstairs and things like that. They're not as useful as they once were. They're clearly not aesthetically pleasing. They're pretty ugly. But once, they were beautiful. Once, they were clean, they were pure white, they were crisp, and they were useful for everything that I needed them to do. And now, after I've walked through life in them, they are torn, they are beaten, they are bruised, scarred, painted a couple times. They've been chewed up and spitten out by at least one dog. They're ugly. And I think sometimes I hang on to them because they remind me of me. Because I too once was beautiful. Unscarred, unwounded, unbroken, beautiful and useful for everything that God required. But now, some days I look a little ugly because I've been through some things. But I have good news. God wants us to embrace his grace. God wants us to embrace his grace, and man, is his grace good. So if you guys have your Bibles, um, flip with me to... Um, Luke chapter 23. We're going to look at verses 18 to 25. If you have a Bible app, poke a couple buttons. Um, you have options. Uh, but we're going to be looking at this scene from Luke's account of the gospel where Jesus is on trial. And so we're going to set the stage a little bit here. He's been on trial for a hot minute. So Jesus was arrested in the garden because he was betrayed by someone that was very close to him. He was Judas. And so since then, he has been arrested, and then he was put on trial before Pilate. And Pilate's like, I don't really know what to do with this guy because it doesn't seem like he's done a whole lot that's wrong. And so he kind of pushed him down the line. And so he pushed him down to Herod. And Herod mocked him, and his soldiers beat him, and they had some fun at his expense, but really was like, I don't really know what to do with him either. And so he pushed him back to Pilate. And so this is where Pilate kind of is again, as he's going... I don't know what to do with this guy because he seems like he's pretty okay. It doesn't seem that he's done something tremendously wrong, and I'm not really sure what to do with him, but it seems like everybody else is super upset. And so that's kind of where we're going to pick up is, is Pilate is in this space where the crowd is, is shouting and chanting and trying to convince him of what to do, even though he's kind of undecided. And there's one verse that's kind of like missing from Luke. It jumps from 16 straight to 18. Some manuscripts include 17, which includes the idea that Pilate would have been obliged to release one prisoner back to the people during like this particular festival period, okay? And so that's kind of like missing in action here, but it's there. And so that's kind of where we're gonna jump back in is Pilate has options but he's not sure what to do. And Jesus' life is hanging in the balance. And so this is where we kind of find ourselves. Verse 18, 
Pilate is trying to consider these things. But all the people cried out together, away with this man, release to us Barabbas. So this is his opportunity to release a prisoner. And here's the options. Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder, or Jesus. These are the options that are being weighed. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. And a third time, he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. So we're going to take a peek at this and dissect this a little bit. Pilate, you can kind of see this tension in him as he's listening to the crowd, but you can tell that he's got something else in mind. He's kind of pleading with them, eh, urging them probably more so, that they should rethink this because he doesn't really see that Jesus has done anything wrong. But they seem to be very insistent. And so life advice from Pilate, it says that they were urgent, demanding with loud voices. Life advice from Pilate, listen to things that are important on your heart rather than urgent on your mind. Life advice. Moving on. So he's weighing these options of who am I going to release to these people? And they're saying, release Barabbas, release Barabbas. And so he does. And so he gives back to the people a murderer, a leader of insurrection, a rebel, a criminal, and hands over to them who are seeking to kill a man who has done nothing wrong, someone who's innocent. And that's what happens. And then Jesus is taken to the cross. He's crucified. And he, he dies. But that's not the end. You see, this leading up to this cross moment, this, this trial is only a step on the journey. You see, this story had been at work for a long time. Jesus was here on purpose. Not just like physically present on earth, but physically present at the trial on purpose. This was a part of the plan. You see, Jesus was walking in our shoes, a mile in our shoes, if you will. He was here on earth, in humanity, in flesh, experiencing what we experience, suffering what we suffer, feeling what we feel, struggling with what we struggle with so that he could show us an example of how to do it correctly. You see, because Jesus was walking in our shoes but never once stepped in a puddle, never once stubbed a toe. And, and that's metaphorically because what I'm trying to say is Jesus walked the life that we live in shoes that were perfectly in step with the will of God to show us how to do it, to show us this is what your shoes should look like. This is what your path should look like. This is what your life should look like. And he did that. And then he stepped on trial and he took the punishment 
that belonged to someone else. And then he walked that to the cross where he laid it down, never to be picked up again. You see, Jesus walked with perfect shoes, knowing that he would take every stain that covered us. He would take on every scratch, every scrape, every hole, every paint stain, everything that we've dirtied our shoes with, he was going to take on. Every sin that got in our way, every stumbling block that tripped us up on our path, he was going to take. And we weren't ever supposed to take it back. That's grace. That's what we have the opportunity to embrace, is this, this beautiful scene that follows such an ugly thing, is that Jesus had a plan and that plan was to take something that was broken, to take something that was mangled, to take something that had been through Dairy Queen several times and to make it new, to make it beautiful. Because that's what he's done. He's taken our shoes, he's taken our walk, and he's made it new. He's taken our heart, and he's made it new. He's taken our life and made it new. Everything that we've cluttered our lives with, everything that has found us with no intention of us seeking it out, everything that's gotten in the way, every sin that has been on us that separated us from God is no longer there because he took it. Not because it was his, because it belonged to someone he loved. That is grace so that we can be with God with nothing separate us, separating us. That was his path, and his path was on purpose. But there's somebody that I think I often jump past in this story. As I, as I hear the crowds, because they're loud, even when you're reading them on a page, you can hear them in the back of your head shouting, give us Barabbas. And I look at Jesus, I'm like, he hasn't done anything wrong. Why would they do that? But I think the person I often overlook is Barabbas. He's constantly caught in the crossfire, but I never take time to focus on him. And I was sitting with this scripture this week, and I felt like God was poking me going, what about Barabbas? What about Barabbas? And so let's, let's rewind a little bit. Let's, let's look here at what is going on with Barabbas. Because when I just glance at Barabbas, what I see is not pretty. What I see is ugly. Because when I look at Barabbas, I see somebody that's angry. He's a criminal. He's started riots. He's murdered. I feel like you do that because you're angry. Maybe you're angry at the world. Maybe you're angry at someone in particular. I don't know. But there's anger that's deep inside your bones. Not like I'm mad because I stubbed my toe. Something different. I see somebody disgusting because he's disgusted with the things around him. And so he becomes everything that should be rejected. I feel like when I feel disgusting, I make myself disgusting. Because people can't reject me if I've already rejected myself. So when I look at Barabbas, I see somebody disgusting, disgusting on purpose. Beat somebody to the punch of rejecting him. I see somebody pompous. I see somebody that's proud of what he's done, even though what he's done is nothing to be prideful in. And so when I see Barabbas, in this scene, I see him walking away from Jesus laughing, scoffing, 
knowing that he got away with something. Because the Gospels, all four of them, describe Barabbas a little bit differently. Matthew describes him as a notorious prisoner. Mark describes him as a rebel, a murderer, an insurrectionist. John describes him as a robber. But what's very clear, clear through all four of them is he's never described as something good. It's always something ugly, which ironically, even John, who's considered the gospel of love, even John doesn't like Barabbas. He's just, he's a robber. And so I feel like it, often when I look at Barabbas, there's feelings that arise. One, I overlook him frequently because he's of little significance to me. So if nothing else, he's overlooked. But at least he's despised. He's disliked in the hopes that he will get what he deserves. If Jesus is going to pay for something he didn't do, somebody ought to pay for something they did do. And that's my thought a lot of times, is my heart for justice wants to say, I hope Barabbas gets what he deserves. But that's not how grace works, is it? And we know that because when we look at Scripture, everywhere else it looks different. So when, I, when I was sitting with this this week, I was just writing down how the Gospels describe him, and I wrote, notorious prisoner, Barabbas. And then next to it, I wrote, Paul. I wrote, John the Baptist, notorious prisoners of Scripture. I wrote, rebel, murderer, insurrectionist, Barabbas. And then I wrote, Moses, who led Israel out of Egypt by creating insurrection in Egypt and who overcame the struggle of the fact that he murdered someone, which I'm sure haunted him. I looked at John's account. I saw robber, and I think Jacob, the namesake of Israel, who stole the birthright from his brother Esau. And then I look at how God's grace impacted their lives over their path in Scripture, and they went from Barabbas to heroes of faith. And God said, what about Barabbas? It's so easy to despise him. It's easy to overlook him. It's even easier to want him to get what he deserves. But what about Barabbas? When we look at this scene, do we see injustice or do we see grace? So I want you guys to do me a favor. I want you to close your eyes. If you haven't had any coffee this morning, maybe just look down. <laughs> I want you to imagine this scene, but I want you to imagine it in Barabbas' shoes. Put on your ugly shoes. There's a crowd amassing around you quickly. You've been yanked from, from your life that you've been stuck in, the life that you're disgusted with and brought to this place. And there's chaos everywhere. It's loud. You can hardly think. You don't know what's going on, but you know that there's hope, but you're not sure why. And you hear this crowd chanting as it is explained to you that you have the potential to be set free. But if you go free, someone else dies. Someone that they say is innocent. But you hear the crowd chanting, Give us Barabbas! Give us Barabbas! 
and you feel it in your heart, this chance at freedom. Freedom from the life that you're stuck in. Freedom from the life you're trapped in. Freedom from the life you're disgusted with. And then all of a sudden, the chaos stops. And there's silence as Pilate issues his verdict. You're free. You're free from everything that's been holding you back. Everything that's trapped you in this life, you are free. But you're free at the expense of an innocent man. You're free at the expense of someone who deserved nothing that he's going to get. And as you walk away, you walk in tension. Because you're so excited about the opportunities of life, but you're ashamed of how you got them. And you look back, even just for a moment over your shoulder as you're walking away, and you look at the man who's taking your punishment. What do you see? Do you see somebody angry? Somebody frustrated with the injustice of a system? Do you see somebody grimacing with the pain that's going to come? Do you see somebody agitated with you because you've got off scot-free? Or do you see somebody maybe with a softness in their eyes? Because you know that the path that they're on was on purpose. You guys can open your eyes. If God's grace is for everybody, what about Barabbas? You see, because God's grace is not rooted in his hatred of sin, but rather his love for us, which means if it's rooted in love, it's limitless. It's not something that's of us. Sin comes from what we struggle with. Love comes from God. And so if his grace is rooted in love, that means it's limitless and it is for us and there's nothing that can stop it. See, we see this image of God over and over again in Scripture is that he's a God who stoops. He's willing to kneel down in the muck and the mire and to pull us out. We see a God who loves us because he desires to be a God who's with us and in us. And we see that as the story goes on. Because God's grace is so tremendously valuable. But it's messy. God's grace is messy because he cares about us and he knows that when we're in the mud, he still cares. When our shoes are filthy, he still cares. When our life is disgusting, he still cares. God's grace is valuable, but it's messy. And it's valuable because it can take the most broken thing and piece it back together into something that's new and something that's beautiful. You see, some of us are like Barabbas. Our life, our shoes, our everything, it's messy. We feel that we are broken beyond measure. The things in our life and the burdens that we bear are too heavy on a daily basis. And we're convinced that we're beyond hope. And that tells us that we're beyond grace. Now, I don't know what's standing in your way. I don't know what's standing in the way of Brabus. If it's guilt for something he's done, if it's the shame of, of what he's accomplished, it's, 
if it's the addiction that he struggles with, the broken relationships that plague him, if it's the depression, if it's the anxiety, if it's the lack of trust he has in others or even in God. I don't know what it is that's standing in his way. But God's grace is messy too. Just because your life is dirty doesn't mean that God stops caring. He is for you, and his grace is for you, and it's not rooted in the things you struggle with, but the love he has for who he made you to be. And he's never lost sight of that. Even if you have, when you look in the mirror and you see the disgust of your life, he still looks at you and sees what he intended you to, you to be. He's never lost that, even if you have. And so don't cling to the things that God has already offered to take off your plate. If he's told you, I'm going to take it. If you're looking at the things that you're holding on to, the sins that were hiding in that back closet, and he's saying, let me take it off your shoulders. Don't hang on any longer. Let go. Barabbas has a chance. That brings me to a place of tension. Because when I see Barabbas walking away, what if he got it? What if he understood that what that was was grace? Not just a lucky chance, not just a coincidence, but something of God. What if he got that? Did it change his life? Did it light his heart on a fire in a way that spread through the town with an insurrection of love rather than riot of hate? What happened? Because scripture's not clear. And so when I sit in this seat and I go, what if I'm Barabbas? I want so badly to see that his heart changed. But I don't know if it did. What if he had an encounter with grace and it meant nothing to him? What if he walked away and didn't care? Because sometimes I look in the mirror and I see Barabbas. But other times, I feel like I meet Barabbas. Barabbas cuts me off in traffic. Hate that guy. Barabbas doesn't mow his, mow his lawn enough. I hate that. It looks bad. There's more mosquitoes. It's a pain. Barabbas cuts in front of me at the store. And the line that's already 18 miles long. Barabbas walks his dog through my yard. And his dog poops and Barabbas doesn't pick it up. Barabbas shouts at a fast food worker in anger over his chicken tenders being cold. I've been in fast food. That's frustrating, okay? I don't like Barabbas. I've met Barabbas. I'm not fond of him. Or maybe Barabbas has a habit that's plagued his life and it. I don't like it. Or maybe Barabbas has a criminal record and I don't like it. Or maybe Barabbas just looks at me funny and I don't like it. But see, grace is valuable. I don't want to waste it. I'm pretty stingy with things that are important to me, things that are valuable to me. I don't just give out freely. I'll give you my Harbor Freight tools, but my DeWalt tools, those are mine, okay? 
It's different when it's a value. And so sometimes I feel like when I meet Barabbas, I get awfully stingy with my grace. Don't get stingy with grace. Because I feel deep inside of me that if Barabbas walked away completely unchanged, Jesus would have told me that it was worth the waste. You see, God's grace is worth the waste. I want you guys to do me another favor. If you have helped somebody within the last year with anything, could be big, could be small, don't care. If you've helped somebody, I would like for you to raise a hand. Awesome. Okay. If you have someone next to you, I would like for you to reach over and shake their hand. If you're sitting by yourself, just like give you the little high five to yourself. Okay. Now I would like for you to clap twice. You have now given a hand in several different ways. How many hands do you have? Still two. You see, not everything that we give away is removed from us. If you give a hand, you still have hands. If you give grace, you still have grace. And I know that analogy breaks down eventually. That's okay. And I know that sometimes when you give a hand, it hurts. Sometimes when you give a hand, you catch something that's falling. It could hurt someone, and instead it hurts you. That's how that works. Sometimes when you offer grace, sometimes when you offer a hand, you get beaten, you get bruised, you get tore up. But let me ask you, is it worth the waste? It's worth it. God's grace is always worth it. The potential is incredible. What God can do in some of the most broken places is insane. The things that he can do with nothing, I could never dream of doing with something. Because it's who he is. He's just that good. And thank goodness he is, because he's the only one that is. But I also respect the complexity of different things. You see, some of us are Barabbas. Some of us have met Barabbas. But to some of us, Barabbas is a little closer to home. Maybe that's because you wake up in the morning and you still think that even after you've accepted grace, you still look a little bit too much like Barabbas. There's some complexity there. Trust God to navigate that with you. Maybe Barabbas hurt your friend. Somebody you care about deeply and he hurt them. Could be physically, could be emotionally, but it's clear that it was more than just a slap on a wrist kind of thing. There's some complexity there. Respect that. Maybe Barabbas has wounded you deeply. He's hurt you with his words. He's hurt your heart with the things that he does, the things he says, the things he thinks, but he doesn't say out loud and you know they're there. Maybe you live with Barabbas. Maybe this is an ongoing struggle, the way that you love and offer grace continuously to someone who seems to not care at all. Maybe you live with Barabbas. Or maybe you love him. 
Because even though he doesn't care, you still do. Respect the complexity. But also know that in trust, God will navigate that with you. Because there's two things I'm certain of. God is for Barabbas, but God is also for you. And so if safety is a concern, trust that God will lead you safely and appropriately. Every circumstance is not the same. Every journey is different. Maybe you have a pair of shoes that are as ugly as mine, but I bet they're a different size. Everybody's walk is different. Graciously respect that. So I don't know where you're at. I don't know if you need to embrace grace for the first time. What are you waiting on? I don't know if you've been running from it because you're afraid of what God has for you on the other side of it. Trust him. Maybe you don't think you can take another step regardless of whether you've accepted grace or not. The burdens are heavy. Navigate those things with Jesus because your burdens may be heavy, but he wants to carry them. One of my favorite verses in scripture, come all who are weary and I will give you rest. Good news. God's not a liar. You come. You rest in grace. Maybe you've embraced grace a long time ago, but you still have it in a death grip. You refuse to give it away because you don't think it'll make its way back to you. Grace is worth the waste. Or maybe grace is pouring out of your heart like it's a river and you're ready to hand it off to everybody you see, everybody you meet, everybody you smile at, everybody you meet eye contact with. Good. There is also more for you. Grace is so good. And that's the thing. It's not always complicated, but sometimes, but very simply, God's grace is beautiful. And God wants us to embrace his grace. Which, there's the thing about grace, is it's a gift. And gifts aren't something that can be earned. They're something that are given freely. And I feel like a lot of us spend most of our life trying to earn a gift that we never could. Rest in grace. But let that grace lead you to the table. And that's communion. You see, this space is not a space that can be earned, but it's a space that's given. This space leads us to respond. When we receive grace, it inspires something within us. This is where we accept his love. This is where we are washed clean of sin. This is where we are healed of wounds. This is where we are joined with Jesus that he would walk with us and in us. This is where we clothe ourselves with God's grace. And sometimes, the only thing that we have on the backside of that to offer back is a thank you. And so we're gonna play a song and if you guys would come up and receive the elements, if you're gonna serve communion, this is a great time to move forward. Um,
but consider in this space where God is meeting you in your journey of grace. What do you have to offer back? And if nothing else, this is where we meet him and offer our gratitude.